0: Um. Okay. Go
1: ahead. So,
0: um, so is it? Uh, would you say it's it's appropriate for me to discuss uh, Buddhist embryology uh, theory, or is that, um, or should I just talk about practice? Uh, and
1: well, if you understand the reason for practice, and by the way, welcome. This is our first time together. Uh, and people might want to watch this video and be curious, so yes, um, having a, a background and, and uh, uh, time in India, you already have been indoctrinated into the same things that um, the Buddha had to deal with with people. And so um, the right way to practice or uh, actually the right way to live our lives is uh, kind of easy to figure out, but because of the habit patterns and the old ways that we have been taught, those interfere with and prevent us from being able to see what we actually need to do right now. Okay, that in fact, whatever happens to someone who is dead doesn't have any effect upon you, whatever you believe. You can believe that he died And he'll never wake up. You can believe that he is has already woken up. He's already in heaven. You can believe any of those things. You can believe that he's going to hell after he's a donkey. It doesn't matter what happens. The question is: is how can you manage your own mind knowing that you don't know that this thirst for knowledge? is built into um, human society in general, but it's especially mm. bad for Westerners. They have to know everything. Mm. Uh, having to know everything is what causes people within computer science to get a PhD. It causes Buddhists to become Buddhist scholars. It causes some Brahmins to be Brahmin scholars, and they even memorize the, um, uh, the Rig Vedas and the Brahmashads. And then the Muslims will memorize the Quran all after a thirst for knowledge, right? Right. But the the question is, is is this the right knowledge or is there a certain kind of knowledge that will be enough? And when we have just enough knowledge, then we don't need to go in the pursuit of more knowledge and more knowledge and more knowledge that we've got enough. When will that ever happen? Because for some people, Most people, it never does, and they're still thirsty for knowledge. They're still wanting things. Even at the point of death, they're still wanting something. And so they can't even stop long enough to enjoy their own death because they want something. They want to know something. Okay, So the question is, how can we train the mind to become satisfied with how things are right now, even though we don't know what we want to know? And it doesn't matter who tells you anything that does not prove that it's true that you're enough of a scientist to know that there is a physical reality and that we can prove things because it can be discriminated, uh, demonstrated over and over and over again. An example of that is. um, Einstein's uh, general theory of relativity and the fact that space bends with gravity uh, and they worked really hard to get a very, very first photograph of an eclipse so that they could show that the stars are out of alignment because the light had to be bending around the sun and that they can only see that. Well, guess what? Every astronomer and every physics professor that I know of still looks for um, eclipses so that they can take their photographic equipment out there and show that again, over and over again, and it happens every time. There's been hundreds, maybe even thousands of photos taken that prove that uh, 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 gravitational big objects, Bend the space which show uh, the alignment is not in a straight line that in fact the star is behind the sun and it's over here but by the line of sight it's actually out there but when the sun moves away the star moves back where it used to be All right we've proven that how many thousands of times that's been proven and now is accepted as scientific fact because it had to be proven over and over and over and over again And yet, all we have for rebirth and reincarnation is stories, and we've got no physical evidence anywhere.
0: Uh, Are you familiar with the Ian Stevenson database? Uh, Do you you consider it remotely credible?
1: I I don't know what you're talking about. No, you're probably talking about a database of stories.
0: Uh, Well, stories that have, um, to some extent, been verified, but of course there are... um, To
1: some extent, okay. Let's go back from some, to some extent, which is now hope, into going back to the bending of light with the eclipse, where that's over and over and over and over over and over and over again. That's the whole point now is, is that that is verifiable evidence. The other is all based in hope. And in fact, you, everyone, even the people who are building that database live their life as if it doesn't matter. Except that it gives them mental pain. Because they want to know. Mm -hmm. Okay, And they still don't know. All right. Now, here's another example of that on the History Channel in the United States. When uh, uh, cable came into to use many years ago, there was an ongoing program on the History Channel. Where they would go with their uh, scientific equipment. I mean, uh, Geiger counters and all kinds of radiation and electromagnetic and all kinds of stuff, including very, very high speed cameras and all kinds of stuff. And they would go to every haunted house that Mm -hmm. had ever been called haunted. And they would do a documentary on that haunted house about how spooky it was. They would play spooky music and the end of the uh, every one of these. They would then admit that we didn't find any evidence at all. Yeah. Okay. That's the whole problem. There is no evidence of ghosts, those kind of ghosts. But there is clear evidence of Prita. Okay. Uh, the, the hungry uh, ghost in the in the hell realms and, you know, the woeful states.
0: There's clear evidence of those?
1: Well, here's the prita, is any time that you are hungry and thirsty after something that you can't get, you have yeah. become a hungry ghost.
0: Fair, fair enough. Yeah, that's a that's a good, uh, good way to say it. Yeah, that's fair.
1: OK, so this is how we begin to understand the teachings of the Buddha is, is that we've got work to do right now to clean yeah. out our minds Rather than worrying about stuff that have no answers to them. Right. Because there will be no end to your suffering, because there will be no end to the questions. What we need to learn is how to become satisfied, even though we don't know what we want to know. Right. So um, the way that you can do that is for anyone who is in your life is dead, you can say goodbye to them and let them go. This is what we call in Buddhism a relinquishment or turning loose. They call it letting go, but a, but it's not just letting go because um, we're actually clinging strongly to it. So letting go for us normally is. That's the kind of letting go. All right. There's an easy letting go and that's this, but we don't do it that way. We Don't just let go. It's like we have to struggle with having it taken away from us. Mm. But that's what real clinging is. Real clinging is the fact that uh, that we lose anything. Anything that we get, we're going to lose. And anything that's dear to us is going to cause us grief. If if we know that, then we can plan in advance so that we know how we are dear to things, knowing that if we are dear to it, it will cause us grief. Now, are we willing to go through that grief or are we willing to kind of let go in advance? So that we don't have to grieve so much when we lose it. An example of that would be somebody who's got a laptop and they need it for their work, but they know what they're doing. They know that laptops are temporary, so they're going to have a whole nother laptop as backup. So that when that laptop dies, they don't go through a grief process. They've got something ready to go. Okay, Okay, so that would be wisdom and planning is to have an extra copy of something that's temporary. Mm-hmm. So when the when the gallon of milk is getting low, it's better to go buy some new uh, some milk if you're going to the grocery store rather than going ahead and running out and then feeling a loss of milk. I don't have milk. Oh, poor me! I'm grieving over loss of milk, loss of mm-hmm. wrap up, loss of a loved one. The thing mm-hmm. of it is, is that. Uh, that's the main teaching of Buddhism, is is that a Nietzsche, Vata Sankara, everything that uh, is in existence, that is put together, compounded like water. Water Mm -hmm. is temporary. Though some of the water molecules may or may not have been lasting millions of years, there's no evidence to know how long a water molecule has been a water molecule. It could have been... Uh, produced in a fire, it could have been produced in the body. In fact, that's something a lot of people don't know about, and that is the urine that you produce is not equal to the amount of water that you drink. that the body actually produces water because we eat the hydrocarbons, we break the hydrocarbons down with oxygen, give by breathing, give the oxygen to the hy- uh, to the carbon, Creating carbon dioxide, we breathe that out and the hydrogen is combined with the water and that is flushed out of the body with urine. If we know that, then we recognize, hey, a lot of the water that we just pissed out right now is brand new water. It wasn't water. It was hamburger last week.
0: Um, well, it's interesting that you touched, they used the word hamburger because uh, that's another question that I wanted to ask you about um, you know Buddhist practice in general. Um, so now so there is a certain teacher uh, who is um, I mean to my mind very very wise in general, very um, knowledgeable uh, who presented the, who presents the following argument. Uh, he says that in Buddhism uh, to in order for you to have killed something, uh, you have to have used a weapon. Uh, you, you have had to have the intention to kill something. you use a weapon uh the being dies uh then you've killed the being and then you point to a plate of meat uh, or to um you know to to, uh, to a slab of meat in, in the store and say did i kill that uh, slab of meat no so i'm just eating it i'm not responsible in any way for how that meat got there um
1: okay. do you agree Here, with, do you... He, well no I do not agree with any of that other than to say that that is typical ordinary mind state. Ordinary people live their ordinary lives with a whole collection of ordinary rules that they are trying to justify their existence against. But let me put it another way. And that is, is that if the mind is noble, if you are in a state of satisfaction, then you're unlikely with that mind that's in a state of satisfaction. You don't want anything. Then the likelihood of you going and killing a big animal or killing a human being is quite remote because you don't want anything from them. Almost always killing uh, requires the desire for it to be dead. And that's just an ordinary way of looking at it. But the noble way of looking at it is, is that I don't want anything. So I'm not going to harm anyone. If I don't want anything, I'm not going to steal anything. If I don't want anything, then I'm not going to lie to try to get it.
0: What about the need for food? Um, so, are you a vegetarian, for uh, for instance?
1: Well, uh, in the West, they have a very, very strong rule, and that strong rule is enforced and has many, many laws associated with it that has to do with you don't work, you don't eat. Mm-hmm. And yet I know millions and millions of people who don't work and they do eat. An example of that would be children, retired people, Mm -hmm. monks and nuns and various orders and all the various religions. Another group of people who don't work are politicians. And we've got tens of thousands of those in the United States and none of them work. They just go around lying all the time and they eat just fine. So that old quality of you don't work, you don't eat is not the issue. The question is, how do you eat? And the right answer to that is, eat mindfully. Eat wisely. Because it's necessary. But if you don't eat, you can still last a month or so. If you don't drink water, you can probably last three, four, five days. But you do have a death sentence two minutes from now. You're going to die. And the only way that you can prevent yourself from dying within the next two minutes is by taking the next breath. So when you're asking about uh, food, I say food's not really important. You go a long time without food, but you can't go without breathing. So let's do something much more immediate to start talking about breath, which is pranayana or anapana or chi or life force. All of that kind of stuff is much more useful for us to talk about than food.
0: Uh, speaking of um, anapana then, um, so do do you uh, would you agree uh, with me that um, anapanasati is um, the prime? I would say the primary form of meditation that the Buddha taught. Or is it is the most useful for, for a beginner at least? To, I, I
1: would go this far to say it this way. And that is, is that, first all, the Buddha himself said that Anapanasati is fit for everyone. And any and everyone who practices will get great benefit, great fruit. We can also see that there are no other meditations taught anywhere in any of the suttas other than anapanasati though there are a whole lot of people who are very deeply interested in the satipatthana sutra it states specifically in the anapanasati sutra that anapanasati is the practice for the fulfillment of the satipatthana the four foundations of mindfulness there's more to it in that and that is is that the uh, the, um, anapanasati sutra fits directly with the uh, the sutta that precedes that, number 117, the great 40, that talks about how to, play, how to apply the Eightfold Noble Path. So the Eightfold Noble Path is what the Buddha teaches and the Anapanasati is the application of that.
0: Uh, how do that's you what feel?
1: he taught. And so, metta, meditations, casino, medit- uh, not, uh, yeah, casino meditations, um, uh, charnel ground meditations, all of those kind of things have their value, but they are not liberating. Mm-hmm. Even metta practice with the four Brahma Baharas are not liberating. But what is liberating is the mind state that we can get in so that we can see how things really are. Mm-hmm. And this is the practice of Anapanasati. Next point about that, and that is is that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa has said that the, the Buddha only taught one kind of meditation, and that was Anapanasati, and caused a great deal of kerfuffle in Thailand, causing a great deal of literature search. Because when Bhikkhu Buddhadasa said something, he had enemies, and boy, would they try to attack him. And they could not prove him wrong when he said that Anapanasati is the only practice that the Buddha taught.
0: There are suttas uh, considerably numerous, uh, as I recall, that talk about um, sending uh, I, I don't know whether the word is metta, or well, it's you know, loving kindness, or equanimity, uh, something like that, in in uh, various directions.
1: Uh, and okay. uh, all right, all right. Now we're we're getting in confused about language and words. One thing that we can understand is is that metta practice was a Brahman practice, and it was practiced in in India before the time of the Buddha. And that there were uh, there suttas about that the monks, uh, the bhikkhus uh, encountered this group of people who were doing the metta practice and they told them what they were doing. And then the monks came back to the Buddha to talk about it. So we know those kind of things exist. And we also know that if you are practicing metta, you are actually having wholesome thoughts for someone. That means that you're practicing wholesome thought. So metta is only an example of a wholesome thought. What the Buddha did teach was wholesome and unwholesome thought and to remove unwholesome thoughts and to put wholesome thoughts in the mind. Mm -hmm. But metta is not the only wholesome thought. And in fact, a whole lot of times people are practicing metta and their metta and their thoughts are not wholesome. And a clear example of that is, oh, let all beings be happy. May all beings be free from suffering. Guess what? That is a a hope. A much better way that's actually wholesome is, wow, I wish everybody felt as good as I do right now. Okay, so may all beings be happy means may all, including me, because I'm not happy right now. So that kind of practice of metta um, uh, is not wholesome. Right. So um, we need to recognize then that ho- that uh, what the Buddha teaches is wholesome, right, and that he teaches anupadasati to reach the uh, to take the mind into that wholesome state. Mm-hmm. And when the mind is confused, it's not wholesome. When the mind wants something, it's not wholesome. When the mind is agitated and worried, it's not wholesome. When the mind is dull or it doesn't care or is feeling defeated it does, or is angry about something, then the mind is really not good for work, is not wholesome. And all of those that I just mentioned, the five hindrances, each one of them is a form of dissatisfaction. So when we get the mind out of the state of dissatisfaction and into the state of wholesomeness, this is the practice of Anapanasati.
0: And how do you deal with uh, hindrances and uh, uh, the practice? Throw the,
1: by throwing them out of the mind as soon as they're seen, as soon as you recognize it, as soon as you wake up, take a look, recognize that this thought right now is a hindrance. Only right now is this thought a hindrance. If it is, throw it out. You are beginning to ask a question about how do I throw out the hindrances for all time? The answer to that is you've got to develop the skill. And the only way to develop that skill is to throw out the hindrances in the mind right now
0: temporarily. Right.
1: And if you can throw it out right now and throw it out right now and throw it out right now. Yeah. Throw it out right now. Now you're on roll and you're heading towards having it completely gone. But if you worry about how can I get rid of them altogether, that actually is a hindrance right there. Yes.
0: So. um, So. uh, So it sounds to me like uh, you're uh, what you're saying is uh, you use concentration to uh, remove.
1: No, 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 no. Do not use concentration. What then? Concentration keeps people deep. And we're looking for flying. We're not, dig- we're not looking for digging a grave and finding out old dead stuff. That's what concentration is about. No. We're looking at ways of freeing the mind. Most times when people are concentrating, almost always they're concentrating on the dukkha. Look at the dukkha, see the dukkha, connect this dukkha with that dukkha, go follow that dukkha down a rat hole. That's what people practice in concentration meditation.
0: Well, isn't isn't the breath a uh, kind of neutral uh, phenomenon? There's no craving attached to the breath, I would assume, which is why, which is…
1: I tell you what, if I was sitting beside you, I'd already be having one arm around your throat, tiding as hard as I can while I've got both your mouth and your nose closed to see… Whether or not neutral breath is neutral or not,
0: uh, it, under ordinary circumstances, uh, you know, for when when, when, when you don't nominal. have
1: it, you need it. That's yeah. what okay. So the ordinary circumstances is, is that you need it, but there it is. Right. That does not make it neutral. It makes it quite wonderful that you need it badly to live, and there it is. So mm-hmm. you can be grateful, thankful. It's not ordinary. It's not um, uh, uh, neutral. You can't live without it. And if you have any desire to live, then breathing is not neutral.
0: So, um, so I would like to ask you uh, what the first jhana feels like,
1: and I. Anapanasati is the practice for that. Yes, um, okay, but and so. the number one thing to have any, um, let us say, to get the mind you fit for work, to get the mind up to scratch, yeah. we have to have the hindrances removed in this moment. That's yeah. the point. That's why we practice the way that we do is, number one, sati, to remember to look at what's going on and then make a correction, make a course correction. And that making a course correction is removing the unwholesome thoughts and putting in wholesome thoughts. Later, the course correction will mean removing wholesome thoughts and putting even more wholesome thoughts in place. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, is the course correction is remove unwholesome thoughts and put wholesome thoughts in the mind and then be satisfied with our new course correction. And then we take another look and we see how it is. And if there's any new hindrances, any new unwholesome thoughts, we remove those and do another course correction. So the teaching of the Buddha is all about change. But in order to be able to change, we have to see how things actually really are. And the way things actually really are is enough for us to be able to make the changes that are necessary. But most of what religion is about is about magical thinking. Christianity is absolutely full of magical thinking, and everybody who's not a Christian can see all the magical thinking, but Christians who can't see the magical thinking in Christianity can can see all the magical thinking in Hindu. But the Hindus can't see it as magical thinking because they think it's real, but they have no evidence. Okay, so you being a physicist, you being a computer scientist, let's work with what's real, what's physical, what's Rupa. Okay. That's where we're going to go with that. And, the, and breathing is real. Breathing is Rupa. Chemicals are real. There's chemicals all over the body. You're just nothing but a chemical mess inside. Okay, the carbon comes in in the form of food and carbon, uh, carbohydrates, and um, uh, um, they're broken down with the breathing. And all of that stuff is happening times a bazillion. There is so much happening within the human body that we don't have any way of keeping track of what all that's happening. But Uh, it's a good idea to start paying attention to what's happening that we can see.
0: So how do you how do you recognize when you are in a jhana or what does the what does a jhana feel like? Um,
1: I mean, are, are The better question is how to practice Anapanasati and what are the skills that need to be developed within Anapanasati? Because if we can develop the skills that are stated in Anapanasati, that means that we have the constituent components that now can all be fit together and to be called the first jhana. This is why it's called samadhi, But um, unfortunately, Samati has been translated into English incorrectly as concentration to where, in fact, samati is in many cases exactly opposite to concentration. I'll give you an example. Have you ever heard of frozen concentrated orange juice? It was very popular 50 years ago in the United States where they would take all the water out of the orange juice for transportation purposes, add sugar to it, freeze it, and sell it. All right, but Thankfully, no one drinks. No one drinks yeah. frozen concentrated orange juice. No. What do we do? We make it back samati. We add water. We add uh, uh, ice. It's already got the sugar in it, and so we have to make it back whole again. So samati means whole, and concentration often means getting down to the basics and throwing everything else out. And we're not practicing concentration. We're practicing gathering together. So first jhana has no concentration at all. It does have gathering together the factors of the first jhana. And what are now the factors of the first jhana? One is applied and sustained thought, which means that I'm applying the mind to the kind of thinking that I'm doing so that there are no hindrances. And then I sustain that so that the thoughts that I'm having in first jhana are all wholesome thoughts. None of them are unwholesome, hindering thoughts. So we apply the mind to the wholesome and remain wholesome. As we're uh, applying the mind to the wholesome, we're actually working with Anapanasati to uh, know the body and to relax the body. Step four of Anapanasati is relaxing of the body, which is actually a, a jhana factor. Okay, the next one so, is by having wholesome, just hang on. You ask a question, let me answer it. Okay. i a to take about four days to answer this question. Okay, so hang in there and listen. So with the, uh, with the, Changing of the mind from unwholesome to wholesome in the Anapanasati Sutta, they reference that as gladdening the mind or brightening the mind. With the mind being brightened over and over again, we continue to sustain having wholesome, bright thoughts. We begin to talk ourselves into feeling good. That good feeling then is the sukha. We begin to feel good as opposed to feel dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. So by throwing the hindering thoughts out of the mind and having satisfying, wholesome thoughts, we begin to feel satisfied and we begin to feel wholesome. When we continue to do this over a long period of time, we begin to get the attitude, Hey, I can do this. And that's when the pity arises so that the piti actually is a skill to be developed with confidence, just like sukha is developed with wholesome thoughts. And so you now have pittisukha, applied, sustained thoughts in the absence of hindrances. Those are the five factors that are constituent together to form the first jhana. So the first jhana literally means that the mind is fit for work. It's fit for work because it's free from the hindrances. It's fit for work because it's got uh, the ability to see what is there in reality, Rather than seeing things in reality through the smokescreen of ignorance of the hindrances, so once we get the mind fit for work, we can now put it into. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, it's okay. So um, this is the first jhana. The first jhana is. These five constituent components, none of which have anything to do with concentration, but when we put these factors together, that's the formation of the first jhana, which is the platform for which we're going to operate. Why? Because now everything that we can see and everything that we can note is going to be wholesome. If it is not wholesome, we're not in first jhana. So by definition, everything that we're looking at in in first jhana is real And it is wholesome, which means it is not subject to mental crap being added to it. It's real. So now we're going to use that for an investigation. So For this him. is the practice of anapanasati, is to get the mind into jhana. This is what it's all about, to get the body relaxed, to get the feelings correct, to get the mind thinking correctly. And when we have the body, the feelings, and the mind working correctly, now we can observe phenomena directly, the arising and the passing away of everything that's wholesome.
0: Um, so I have had times at which uh, it has seemed to me like uh, there's pity uh, all over the body, and it seems to explode in waves.
1: Right, um, but this is ordinary. People have those experiences by riding the surfboards. People have those kind of experiences racing their cars, right, going so to that's... Uh, right. So thrill-seeking, right. yeah, right. it's a common experience. It's nothing special about it. So how do you ordinary?
0: So how do you uh, but it can be very um, distracting, I guess, is the word that I'm looking for. So how do you deal with uh, with those experiences in meditation? So firstly, that's not a
1: jhana, correct? Thought distracting is a hindrance. Right. Thoughts of it being a distraction is a hindrance. So even though you're feeling pity, that's not first jhana. It's just one of the constituent components that, in fact, that that it is a hindrance means that now the mind is in an unwholesome state, Mm -hmm. even though there is still pity there. Mm -hmm. I see. So pity is not the key ingredient. There are no key ingredients. You have to have all five. It's almost like this. Imagine that you're going to bake a cake. Yeah. And you've got all the ingredients for making the cake, including the bowl and the mixers and uh, the eggs and the milk and the sugar and the flour. And all of a sudden you realize you've got no flour. You're missing an ingredient or you're Mm. missing the sugar. Mm. If you go ahead and make that cake without one of those ingredients, then it's not going to be cake. Whatever it is, it might be a palafel, It it might be a souffle, but it's not going to be a cake if it doesn't have all the ingredients that cakes require.
0: Yeah, fair
1: enough. That's, um, the, that's what we have to understand. That it's a collection. It's a samuti. It's a putting together of things, not that one is something more important than the others.
0: Right. That that was uh, that was very helpful. Um, thank you so much for that. Um, so I just had a few questions about dependent origination, uh, if I may. Uh, so, dependent origination, kind of begins with the condition of ignorance.
1: Um, Actually, you're going through a formal method. It would act this. This one also would take quite a long time to answer it. And I'll tell you, I'll I'll give you part of the reason for that. And let me describe it this way. If you take the actual teachings that I'm giving you and put them together in an understanding Then you can take what you already know and begin to plug it in. But almost no one does that correctly. What they do instead is they take every little individual thing that I say and try to plug it into what they already know. That's going to make it very, very long and slow because you're using a basis as what you already know. And I would like for you to throw that out for a little while and take on the basis of actually how to get started practice so that you get the real basics down because you're missing them you're not ready for petite samuppada fair but, enough okay that you need to get the mind fit to work and right. when the mind is fit to work then you can work with petite samuppada now some of petite samuppada is rupa and some of it is arupa, mm-hmm. which means that there's a certain time in our practice that the first jhana is rupa. When we get the mind up to the fourth jhana, that's a rupa, which means that now we can use that state of a rupa, not physical, so that we can see what's totally mental, which is the actual issues of Paticca samuppada is that some of it is physical and some of it is mental. Let's work with the physical parts while we're still physical. Okay, right. so first jhana is physical. What I mean by that is, is that the hindrances are real. Sukha is real. Why do I say that? Is because it has certain body chemistries inside the mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, it has certain body chemistry in, in the body. If you feel good, th- there's going to be a different body chemistry than if you're feeling agitated, uptight, or angry, right. then you're going to have different body chemistries. So this is all quite real. When people are um, experiencing pity, it's clearly real. An example of that would be a touchdown made at a football game. Uh, let us say it's the star uh, end of the year uh, World Cup or uh, Rose Bowl or something like that, and the guy, the the quarterback, makes the touchdown. What does he do immediately after he makes the touchdown?
0: celebrate
1: he celebrates that's what pity is it's celebrated and it has physical manifestations to it yes um... okay so this is why we're going back to very basics let's stay with the basics until we get the basics down I was like that with music, that I didn't like playing the pieces that the teacher gave me. I wanted to play the pieces of music that I could hear on the recordings. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't play that music on the recordings. I wasn't ready for it. Mm -hmm. And so I was frustrating myself instead of actually becoming good at what I could do. I was very bad at something that I couldn't do, but I Mm -hmm. wanted to do it. Okay, so let's go back to the basics of Anapanasati and get those down so that we can have a base to build on. And how we do that is going back even more basic, back to the Four Noble Truths. And back to the, in fact, the entire teachings of the Buddha can be stated in just one little phrase. He says, both formerly and now, I teach only one thing. The Buddha only teaches one thing. What does he teach? Dukkha. Dukkha naroda. Seeing our dissatisfaction and coming out of dissatisfaction. There's no magic in there anywhere. The Buddha has no magical teachings at all. The Buddha did not teach magical powers. He did not teach rebirth and reincarnation. He did not teach other worlds. He taught suffering and the end of suffering. That in fact, people who want other worlds who want reincarnation, who want magical powers, are all being dissatisfied because they don't have what they want. And nobody gets any of that stuff because it's a rupa. It's not in the real world. There are no magical powers. I've gone through India and I've seen quite a lot of stuff. One of the things that I remember seeing was a guy that had two pieces of uh, flat plate steel welded together between them was a pole and he would go and bury one of those pieces of steel having the pole come up and having a chair for the other one he would then sit on this and drape a little cloth over the pole that he had so that it looked like that he was floating in the air about a foot and a half off the ground so i stationed myself at a restaurant where i could see him and waited for him to get up and he did and he picked his chair up and he walked away when nobody was looking. These are the magical powers. They're almost always magical tricks. You've heard of the rope trick. You know what a rope trick is, is what they do is they take an old piece of wiring, some cable, that's coming, you know, mostly copper, sometimes it's aluminum, and they unwrap the rope, put this piece of copper pipe or this copper rod in it, wrap the rope back in it, and then coil the rope down and then the guy sits in front of this coil of rope while another one is magically touching it here and there, and soon the rope begins to rise. Well, he's actually forming the, ro- uh, the, the copper inside the rope so that it becomes straight, and the rope just goes up in the air. So it's all just magic show, right? But people want that kind of thing, and when they want it to be real, they never get a real rope to do that. But you're enough of a scientist to know about uh, um, uh, flexibility and gravity and weight and all of that to recognize that, yeah, it's going to take the stiffness of a copper tube or a copper wire to hold that rope up because the rope's not going to do it by itself. So this is why we need to deal with reality. We need to deal with what's real because that's where we're going to find our salvation from our suffering. So. The teaching of the Buddha is dukkha, dukkha nirodha. coming out of our mental suffering, and almost all of our mental suffering is caused because we want something to be real that's not real. If If we're satisfied with what is real, now we've got something going to be satisfied with what we've got to be satisfied with what's real. This is the basic teaching of the Buddha. The question is, how can we come out of that state of being the first noble truth, of being in a state of being dissatisfied, into the third noble truth? We're in a state of being satisfied. As well, I understand, number one, how we got there, the second noble truth, and number two, what we can do to get out of that state right now, the eightfold noble path which has sati, to look at what we're doing, to remember, to look at what we're doing, and then make a change, to throw that unwholesome hindrance out of the mind, and put a wholesome thought in the mind over and over again, until we begin to feel really good. This is the basic practice of the Buddha. No magic anywhere necessary. It's a real practice. But this practice will take us out of the world of desire. And so we become, uh, in the Pali, the word is lokatara. We become above dislocation. We become above our environment. We become above the rules. We become above our own desires so that we, we are able to live in the world of ordinary people. But we don't get it rubbed off on us. We don't become worldly again simply because we're in the world, just like a swimmer can swim in the water, but he does not become water. So he could be in the world or in the water, but not of the water. He's not the water. So when when we are raised as children because of our own ignorance. We we join the world. Very, very rarely would be a baby that was born that could see with wisdom, the reality of the stupidity of the things that his parents are telling him. None of us. We're all born in that ignorant state and then we're raised in that ignorant state so that everything that we collect, everything that we remember, every childhood rule that we've learned, that we grow up with, we learn that in ignorance. This is why ignorance starts at the foundation. So everything that we learn, all of that stuff that's put together, all of those Sankaras are learned ignorantly. Now it's time to unravel that stuff. Instead of having unwholesome things that we remember through ignorance, we begin now to put wholesome things into our Sankara so that we change the balance. And sometime in the future, eventually, you've had so many wholesome thoughts recently and so rarely unwholesome thoughts that the new wholesome thoughts begin to outweigh the old unwholesome thoughts. And so now you naturally begin to have wholesome thoughts. But we all start out with unwholesome thoughts because everything is a survival issue when you're a very young baby. But now that you're an adult, very few things are an actual survival issue. The only survival issue you have right now is your next breath. That's right. Everything else is safe right now. And so if we can see that safety and recognize that we are getting the breath that we need and that we can be grateful for that breath. Oh, I'm so glad I can have one more breath, one more easy breath. Wow, how nice this breath is, keeping us alive. And so we have begun to have wholesome thoughts like that. And as our wholesome thoughts grow and expand, then those wholesome thoughts will be what we use with our perception in order to understand and make sense out of reality. So, in fact, I am beginning to teach for teacher Samapada. So let's go back to the fact that the Buddha actually teaches only one thing. And so when we see the five of this and four of that and eight of those and 16 of them things and 12 of this and nine of those and all of that, five more of that and four more of those things and three of them, all of those numbers are mere mnemonics to look at the various components. But when everything comes back together, the teachings of the Buddha is just one thing, and that is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. That's all that is being taught. But it looks very complicated to the beginner because there's all of this, that, and the other thing to where, in fact, it's really, really very simple. The Four Noble Truths is actually nothing but the Eightfold Noble Path to get yourself into a state of satisfaction. And that's very easy to do with the four, with the Eightfold Noble Path when we apply it to Anapanasati so we wake up we see what's in the mind we gladden the mind and we do that over and over and over again wake up see what's in the mind and gladden the mind that waking up is sati the seeing what's going on is the diti, the samaditi, right viewing and then the next one is to make a course correction to make a change To change the mind from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. These three items on the Eightfold Noble Path is exactly how we practice Anapanasati. And as we sit there, we relax. Because we tell ourselves, it's okay to relax. And so we relax and we take deep breath and we begin to feel good right here in this very moment. And as we do that, then we begin to get joyous and happy. And as that joy grows, it grows into the pity with the attitude of, I've got this. Wow, this feels really good. And that would be the first jhana. It's not magical. People who want the first jhana and don't have the first jhana, for them, it's magical. And so they can paint any kind of picture on that magical idea that they have. But the first John is actually a real ordinary state that everybody goes in and out of every day. The question is, can you see this stuff correctly and clearly? And then um work you know to see things the way that they really are and be satisfied with that and not be wanting to have things that we don't have. And so this is the the correct way of, of practicing, and it's better to do this in seclusion. Because the world will keep us in hindrances. We'll think of work to do and all of that. So we need to get away in seclusion and just practice on looking at what we have in the mind and not allowing the mind to do anything other than having happy, wholesome thoughts about what's happening right now. Nothing in the past, not last week, not last month, not last lifetime, not in the forward, not in the future, not tomorrow, not next week, not next lifetime, just what's happening right here, right now. Do I feel good? Am I talking myself into feeling good? so this is the practice practice of feeling good the question of that is how good do you feel the answer to that is good enough because if you feel good but it's not enough then you're still dissatisfied so you can be you can feel this good and be dissatisfied you can feel this good and be dissatisfied and you can feel that good and be dissatisfied So how good you feel is not the real issue. The real issue is, is are you satisfied with how you feel? This is the sukkha, the satisfaction, as opposed to the dukkha, which is being dissatisfied. And so here you called me being dissatisfied because you don't know this, that and the other. And now you're recognizing that you can, in fact, be satisfied, even though you don't know this, that and the other, because it's not really relevant. So this is uh, how we begin to practice, and I would recommend rather than the normal way that Westerners practice is um, sitting for long periods of time. It's better to practice quite often four to six times a day for a short period of time, like 10 to 15 minutes. If you practice like that, then you've got a, a fresh, bright mind that you can work with and bring that mind into a happy state. But if you've been sitting there on the floor for 30 or 40 minutes and the mind is dull and the breathing is not good, then we're wasting our time sitting there on the floor. Uh, We're thinking that we're getting some value because we're at least racking up the hours as if some common machine is keeping track. But common machines don't have clocks. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's no reason to practice for long periods of time if we're not practicing correctly. Then, in fact, if we're practicing, but not practicing correctly, then we're not just wasting our time. We're just reinforcing old bad habits. So it's better to practice short periods of time and practice over and over and over again to get the mind back into a really good, happy, wholesome state. <laughs> to relax the body, to relax the feelings, to relax the mind and just be gentle on yourself. There's a whole lot more to say about this, but this is a basic introduction, just to get started.
0: Well, uh, thank you so much, um, Tamarato. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to tell me all of this and I will uh, continue with my practice, which um, uh, in recent times has been, Uh, less successful than than it used to be, but I will continue, and hopefully I will make progress over time.
1: Okay, well, I'm hoping that whatever you've been practicing, you start making some changes to it, so that you don't want so much, that you can practice in this present moment, I've got everything I need, I can breathe, that's all I need right now, and I'm happy Mm -hmm. with what I've got, so this is the new emphasis on practice, this is what we would say is going to be the practice in that regard we can make the distinction between meditation which i don't teach but i use anapanasati to teach the dhamma so uh if you're willing to uh go in that direction then i'm quite willing to have you as a student
0: um, that would be great. Uh, it's uh, just that I uh, I also do have um, work obligations and family obligations, so uh, subject well, to that. Well, I only
1: asked for five or ten minutes, and here you are saying that you've got to quit family and work obligations? I don't think so. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: I'm, I, I would love to uh, to
0: practice. I would love to practice.
1: Yeah, it doesn't take even an hour a day. You can do even less than an hour a day. One time you can do it is early in the morning when you first wake up. Get yourself ready for the day by saying, hey, I can take care of this day. This is going to be a marvelous day and I can handle everything just right. We don't have to think about what we're doing. We can think about feeling good for a while. And then when you lay down at night, instead of thinking about going to sleep or thinking about all the stuff you've got to do tomorrow, you can just think about how nice it is to just to lay in bed and breathe. And here is so snugly warm and everything is so cool and everything is so nice and get your mind into that frame of reference. And then you'll have sweet dreams because you're having sweet thoughts. But if you have thoughts about how much busy you've got to be tomorrow, then you're going to be busy in your dreams. So. These are two times to practice, once in the morning and once in the the night. And then you can plug in a couple of other times during the day for five or ten minutes at break or at lunch or when you're driving or anything you can do. That this is not requiring that you sit on the floor in a particular building with a particular Buddha, Rupa and um, statuary or maybe a monk and candles and incense, you know, the whole nine yards of it. Sometimes we have beads and bells and none of that stuff is important. What's important is to clear the unwholesome thoughts out of the mind and get yourself into a state of rest. So easy, nothing to it. Mm -hmm. You don't need any of the paraphernalia. You don't need anything other than a happy mind. And we can get that easy enough by taking a few deep breaths. So. What I would recommend is the students call in the beginning once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. So give it a few days, get yourself into a really good state, and then call me. Or if you don't get yourself into a good state, then for sure call me. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see you later. When you when are you going to call? Let's
0: um, so say the middle of the week, maybe Thursday. Okay. If, um, yeah. Excellent. Depending on if I've made any progress
1: by then. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, what I'm saying is it doesn't matter what progress that you've made, whatever you're doing, we can talk about it. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Uh, and your name is Kirti? Yes, close enough. Okay. Haven't heard that name ever before.
0: Um,
1: well, it's a, it's a Hindu name. I know, I can tell, and <laughs> <laughs> that's clearly obvious, but I'm not sure which ha- language it is in. I'm more familiar with uh, uh, both Gujarati and Hindi, but I'm, that doesn't look like, it. that's probably, what, Tamil. No, that's not Tama.
0: I am not too sure, honestly, so I don't want to say something that's not correct. So. <laughs> okay,
1: all right. Well, if you don't care, neither do I. <laughs> 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 That's not relevant. All right. Well, we'll see you again. Thank you so much. Okay. Much appreciated. Okay. Bye
0: bye.